Good morning. My name is Will Bushman. I am one of the student directors here. And just as I was sitting there and I was hearing about Scott and just celebrating Scott, um, and even just as I get up to preach, it takes me back to my first job here was actually as a student ministry intern um, about like seven years ago now. Um, And just as I was thinking about Scott, um, I got to prepare my very first message for a bunch of middle schoolers titled God is Father. It was very complex, very beautiful. Um, And it was actually under the mentorship of Scott. So as a lot of us have gotten to be a third party and watch and see what Scott has done here at Rio, um, I get to say thanks to Scott just as a product of his ministry, just as someone who sat under his mentorship and leadership and guidance. Um, So just thanks, Scott. Um, But even as we continue this morning, um, we come to our series, Desiring the Kingdom. And and as we've gone through this, we've walked along with Solomon. We've seen Solomon acquire the throne. We've seen him receive this divine wisdom. And last week, we saw him receive the job and really the beautiful privilege to build the temple. And Sam walked us through that. And so the idea of the temple is this idea that no longer will God reside in a structure like a tabernacle that's portable, but God has decided to create a home here on earth via the temple. And we arrive in 1 Kings 8 this morning, the first few verses. And in this verse is the building of the temple is done. And we see that now Solomon is moving the holy artifacts of God in. So we start in 1 Kings 8, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 9. It says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house. In the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land. And the Ark of the Covenant has finally arrived. Right? And the Ark had a long journey to get to this place. It was made and it was created by the wise craftsmanship under the leadership of Moses in the wilderness. Right? And during that time, it traveled everywhere they went. Through the wilderness years, through the years of conquest. Right? It made its home at the city of Shiloh for a long time. And it even was under enemy hands for a little while. But we see that the Ark of the Covenant is important. And but we don't see, and we see it very specifically in verse 9, right? It says, inside the ark was only the two tablets, right? If you did your personal worship this week, you knew that there was actually three things in the ark when Moses was, un- was over it, right? There was a jar of manna, there was Aaron's rod, and there's these two tablets, right? So as we enter into this passage, we see that only one of those things remains. And that was a lot of stuff. Right, as we've seen with all of the temple dialogue these past couple chapters, right, there's a lot of monotonous, there's a lot of detail. But what we're learning is that scripture has chosen these details 
purposefully. And one of those things that explicitly tells us is that the tablets were the only things that remained. And these tablets held a special significance for the people of Israel. It was in the Exodus, after they left Egypt, that God had given them these tablets with his law written upon them. It was significant. It was for the people of Israel. But what we're going to see this morning is not to negate that significance, but these tablets have significance for you and I right now. That these tablets that were made thousands of years ago by the hand of God, they point to something greater. They point to someone greater. That as we look at these two tablets and their history, we're actually going to be able to see Jesus Christ through them. And that's our purpose here this morning. So in order to do this, all all we have to remember is this. Tablets to Jesus, tablets to Jesus. Just as we go through all of this. And we begin all the way back in Exodus 20. Right, where God comes to the people of Israel, specifically Moses, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them different laws, you know, about the Sabbath, about festivals, about all of these things. And he verbally speaks these to them. And we know that the word of the Lord, his verbal word, has the power to create. Right? We saw that back at creation. We saw that he spoke and things came into existence. But as he says these laws verbally, he does something special. God decides, hey, it's not just enough for my verbal word to be spoken through these laws, but I'm actually going to write them down. I'm going to give you a physical copy of them. Exodus 24, 12 says this. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. And God's doing something new, right? He's doing something purposeful. He's saying, my verbal word is now made physical. He's materializing the word of God. Think about that. He took his very finger and he wrote on these tablets. The very God has now made his word physical. And this this intimate moment between Moses receiving these tablets up on the mountain is, is quickly interrupted. In Exodus 32, 7, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is the land of death. It's the land that they were enslaved in. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Moses was gone for 40 days receiving the law on this mountain. The people were left alone for 40 days only. And as soon as Moses leaves, in Moses' absence, the people fall apart. They say, we can't see Moses right now, we can't see God, so we're going to collect all of our gold, all of our jewels, and we're going to make this golden calf. You know, if you give them the benefit of the doubt that they created this golden calf as a, represent, as a physical representation of Yahweh, the one true God, which is still sinful, which still breaks the law of God, and at the worst, they actually wanted to go back to Egypt and worship the bull God that they found there. Either way, we see that these people are are, are running now from God. The God who brought them out of slavery. The God who saved them. The God who has given them his presence through the wilderness. The God who has walked with them. The God who has talked with them. And now they turn their backs on him. And the Lord's response, it's serious. In verse 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people... And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. 
Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. And we just sang those words about a holy God. In our modern Western world, this seems way too serious. Right? The stiff-necked people who God wants to bring his fire of wrath upon. It's because a holy God is is intimidating, it's scary, and we kind of want to walk away from it. But this passage is a good reminder that God is holy. He's perfect. He's without blemish. He can't be near the sin of the people, that sin deserves punishment, and that these people deserve punishment. And you never want to hear a phrase like burn hot or consume them when it's speaking about you, especially from a holy God. And also, we, we can't quickly pass up that last verse that I may make a great nation out of you. God's not saying that I may make a great nation out of y'all. He's not saying that. He's saying Moses specifically. Moses, look at you. I'm going to wipe out all of these people because they have sinned against me, and I'm going to start over with just you, a holy God and a sinful people. But Moses comes and he tries to intercede. He tries to stand in the gap, and verse 11 says this. But Moses implored the Lord, his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn now from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken about bringing the people. And it's beautiful, right? You saw this holy God and a sinful people, and you see Moses stand in the gap between them. He intercedes for the people. And God relents from his original plan to consume all of them and leave only Moses. But it's not Moses that changes God's heart. It's God realizing his name. It's for the sake of his purpose. It's out of his graciousness overflows this mercy for the people. And we're at this moment in the story where this. Moses is on the mountain with God. He hears of what's going down at the bottom. right? And he intercedes on behalf of the people. But something's about to change. And I think about um, the parents in this room. And I was just thinking that, that Moses is in a position like a parent often gets in. Right, one of your kids comes to you and they say, while you're sitting in the living room, hey, Billy has made a real mess in the playroom. And verbally, you hear it and you think, okay, doesn't sound great. Right, but let's go check it out. And as soon as you start to round the corner, before you even enter the room, you're stepping on Legos and then you enter into the room and the bookshelf's thrown over and there's paint on the wall and there's marker and Billy has actually destroyed everything around him. Because seeing the actual problem was much different than hearing it in your own mind. Because Moses begins to walk down the mountain. Verse 15 says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. He keeps bringing that to mind, the physical word of God written down. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. 
And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to a powder and scattered it on the water. And he made the people of Israel drink it. Moses was not ready on that mountaintop for what he was about to see at the bottom. Right? He saw this saved people, this people of God who God has walked with, turn their backs away from the God who loves them. They've sold out this true and living God for a fake substitute of who he is. And what do you see? Those tablets, the physical word of God, the word of God that you can hold, the word of God that has been materialized, were thrown down and it was broken due to the sin of the people, in reaction to the people's sin. And we even see this. Moses, in his anger, he takes this golden calf, he burns it down into a liquid form, he puts it in water, and he passes it around for the people to drink. And you have to think, that's, that's crazy, Moses. That's absolutely insane. Like, what a weird punishment to give to the people. But what is Moses doing? He's saying, you put your trust in this God, you thought that this God was going to be trustworthy, that he could save you. Now consume that God. Consume him in your heart, consume him in your stomach, and does that God have the ability to do anything for you? Has it abated the wrath of God? Has it stopped your sin? No, it's a fake God that you have consumed that has done nothing for you. And again, we see Moses on behalf of the people. He says, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now it will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And Moses knows that that fake God that they consumed couldn't stand for the people. And Moses even puts himself out. He says, God, in order for these people's sin to be forgiven, take my life. Take it. Just blot me out of your book. Destroy me with your wrath. But God says, no, Moses, not even you can be the perfect sacrifice for the people. Not even you as the leader I've chosen to lead these people, as the intercessor for the people. You're sinful as well, and you cannot stand on behalf of these people. And just as the story continues, we see that God doesn't do it. We see that God does punish sin. Many people die by sword and by plague, but he doesn't wipe out a whole nation. He relents with his mercy. And not just that, God doesn't walk away from his people, but he gives them back his presence. And the last thing that God does is this. The tablets that were broken because of the sin of the people, he says, Moses, come back to the mountaintop. Bring me back two more tablets, and I am going to give you back my word. I'm going to recreate exactly what was broken for the people. And it's beautiful. And it's wild. But we get to the end of this, and I said the tablets will point us to Jesus, and a lot of us right now are saying, well, cool story about the tablets. That was great. I see that Moses acted on behalf of the people. I see a lot of things that I can apply to my life from that. But how do we get to Jesus from here? 
In order to do that, we have to turn to the Gospel of John. The four Gospels start out the New Testament, and they all start in very different ways. Matthew starts with a genealogy about Jesus. Luke starts with the actual birth narrative of Jesus. Mark starts by skipping baby Jesus, teenage Jesus, and he wants to get right at adult Jesus, which is awesome. But John starts off like this. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The name of Jesus is not anywhere in that passage, but it's explaining exactly who Jesus is. John is calling Jesus the Word. And what is he doing by this? John, knowing the scriptures, he's trying to take you back to the other times you've heard the word. Right? And we just saw it with the tablets, the word of God in physical form. He's trying to say, if you know the story about the tablets, you have a good idea of what's about to happen now with this word named Jesus. Right? Because all the scriptures point to one thing and they point to Jesus. He's keying you in. That you know this story, but the story that's about to take place is going to be far better than that of the tablets. It's going to be far better than that of the Exodus. Because John 1.14 continues this, And the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Right now, we don't just have a Word that's been materialized on stone tablets. Now we have a Word who is flesh. We have Jesus Christ who has come as the Word with skin and bone. He has a heart that pumps blood. He has a stomach that needs food. He has hands that he can touch things with. He has feet that help him walk. He has a mouth to speak. He has ears to hear. He's not just a stone tablet, but he's human. And think about it. God didn't just make the word flesh and and made it for way out there. right? Because what's that last part of that verse? The word became flesh and dwelt where? He dwelt among us. It wasn't the gift of God to become human, but it was the gift of God that he became human and decided to come and meet with his people. And verse continues, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Listen to this. For the law was given through Moses, through those tablets, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has also made him known. And the incarnation, that this whole idea of Jesus Christ becoming flesh, the word made flesh is absolutely mind-bottling. Right? It's not just the verbal word of God creating, but it's the fact that Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity, the thing who all things were created by and for, decided to take on flesh. And he didn't just take on that flesh for no reason, but he took on that flesh so he could come down to this earth. So why did he come? Who is this word in flesh given to? Right? Think back to the tablets. God's word physically materialized. Who was that word given to? It was given to Israel. But who is Israel? Israel is a sinful people. So now think about Jesus. The word made flesh. Who has he come for? Who has God the Father given him to? A sinful people. 
I mean, you and I in 2021, we're not mustering up any golden calves. Right? Our, our worries aren't about that. But our idols still exist. In fact, Calvin called the human heart idol-making factories. It's part of our sinful nature of you and I. We can take any good gift from God, the good things he has blessed us with, and we can take those things and we can make them ultimate things, surpassing who God is in our life. And it's so easy. Think about it. Think about it with money, a good gift for God to provide for you. Right? What do we do? Man, if I can just get enough, if I can just chase after long enough, if I can spend all my time working, if I can spend all my time accumulating and hoarding, then maybe one day I will finally have enough and I will be satisfied and I will be content and I will have all the financial security. I will have all the comforts. I will have all the pleasures my heart desires. What about our families? Man, if one day I could just marry this man or this woman, one day if my spouse just looked like this and talked like this and acted like this and did this, then my heart will finally be satisfied. What about if you have a current spouse? Well, if my husband or wife just just looks a little more like this or talks a little bit more like this or acts a little more like this or, or does this or does that, then maybe my heart will be finally satisfied. Take kids... One of the greatest gifts from God, but also the easiest to make an idol out of. Man, if only my kid would act more like this. If only my kid would get grades like this and then go to a college like this and get a job like this and be the perfect image of who my family should be, then finally I will be satisfied because of what this child has done. So we're a lot more like the Israelites. It's not golden calves, but it's, it, it's still idols in our life. So just like the tablets were given to a sinful people, the word made flesh, Jesus, is given to a sinful people. And the story of the tablets, right? They're broken, right? And what breaks them? The tablets in this instance was broken by the sin of the people. The people sinned, Moses reacted, tablets were broken. So what does this point us to? Right, what about Jesus? This word made flesh that, that we're looking back at and in order to look forward to who Jesus is, why did he become flesh? Right, he became flesh for sinful people to be broken for the sinful people. But what's the difference? Right, Jesus was broken for it. It wasn't in reaction. Jesus' plan all along from the outset was to save this broken people. And listen now, Paul later recounts in 1 Corinthians about the night that Jesus was betrayed. He says, while they were eating, right, with all of the disciples in the upper room, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What was Jesus saying that night that was about to take place the very next day to his disciples? He's saying, I am the word made flesh. This is my body and it is going to be broken for your sins so you can be reunited to God. And think back about the golden calf story. When the people consumed that God, did it save them? No. But what is Jesus saying? My broken body, when you consume it, thank goodness it's not literal like the golden calf, but when you consume it, you will have life and you will have life Abundantly. 
He's saying what everything else can't do. My broken body can do for you. And what takes place later that very night after that? What happens to this word made flesh? He's arrested by an army far too large for just one man. He walks off peacefully in that flesh, knowing what awaits him. In that body, he withstands. It's just an awful trial that's not fair, that's not right, that's not honoring to any kind of law given. He's a perfect son of God who came to this earth. He never sinned, he never wronged anyone, yet he was sentenced to death. And death will be the end of the road for him. But what about on that road to death? What happens to his physical body? Right? The body that he took on is beaten. It's beaten to an absolute pulp that when he's seen on the cross, you can barely even recognize him. That body that he takes on, it's scourged by whips time and time again. In that body, he is mocked. In that body, he is spit on. And all the while knowing that this was the purpose for why he came. And what happens after all of that? If the beatings weren't enough, if his body hadn't withstood enough, in that body, what is he forced to do? He's forced to carry the own weight of his execution. And he walks in that body with the cross that he is going to die on until he can't walk anymore, until his physical body gives out and someone has to help him. Then that body that he has taken on for a sinful people is laid on the ground. It's laid on a tree and he's nailed to it. And in that body, he is lifted up between two thieves on either side. And it's not just his physical body that's taking on pain and punishment, but it's the wrath of God that burns down, the wrath of God that was meant for us because of our sin, just like the sinful people of Israel deserve the wrath of God. But God looks at you and I in all of our sin. And he says, no, my fire is not going to consume you. But I'm going to let my wrath consume the son who I sent to you in the flesh. And on this cross, that wrath of God was satisfied. And what is Jesus thinking about the whole time on that cross? Right, through the excruciating pain in his body, through the sins that was laid on him. What does he say on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Even in death, he's a far greater intercessor than Moses could ever be. On the cross, his only thought was for a sinful people. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that he could be broken for our sins. He could be broken for our atonement. He could be broken and killed so that I once again can be right with God. And we know because we're on this side of the cross that the cross is not where Jesus stayed. But also we know that cross is not where Jesus stayed because of the story of the tablets. Think about it. The tablets were broken, the flesh, you know, the physical materialized word. But what did God not allow? God didn't allow his word to remain broken forever, but he rebuilt them. He gave them a new body. He put them back together. So what happens to the word made flesh thousands of years later? Broken on the cross, put into a tomb, dead. But what happens in that tomb three days later? The word made flesh, broken for his people, was raised up in a new and glorified body like this world had never seen 
before. So we started with the tablets in 1 Kings 8. And 1 Kings 8 seems like really far away from where we are now. But that's where we began. Because 1 Kings 8 served the purpose for the people by, by showing us that these tablets were in the Holy of Holies. Right? And they gave the people the law, but they've done something for us this morning. And through the tablets, we have seen the king of the kingdom that we're desiring through this whole series. That our king is Jesus made flesh whose body was broken for you and I. The one true king, the only king, would die for his people. This king that we're desiring. He doesn't give the people what they deserve. He doesn't give you and I what we deserve. Instead, he takes on everything that we deserve. Where we should have death, he only gives us life. Where we should have punishment, he only gives us reward. That is why he came. And that's the king I want to believe in. That kind of king. That's the king that I want to follow. That kind of king. That's the king who in my life wants me to give up every little idol. And it makes it a lot easier when I can see who that king is. But we know that following a king requires obedience. Right? No king in the history of this earth was okay with this obedience. They require it. But here's how Jesus requires obedience. He doesn't say, hey, clean yourself up and then come and see me as your king. No, he says, I died, so now you can come to me. I died first, you are saved because of that. In obedience, he says, come. And we're going to end with this little piece of hope right here. Right now, this morning, Solomon's temple's long gone. Right, the Ark of the Covenant, we have no idea where it is. The tablets, they're gone. But right now, Paul comes to us later and he says this. He says, you, the Lord's people, are now the temple of God. And just like the temple had the Ark of the Covenant and the Holies of Holies, and the tablets were inside of that, inside of your temple, in your Holies of Holies, your heart, there's something written on it now. And Paul says this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do you see that? He's writing on our hearts. He's the one who's transforming. It's by his Spirit and it's by his power that we can obey him. So this morning, we come worshiping a king, desiring the king of our kingdom, a king who became flesh to dwell among us. And in that flesh, he was broken for you and I so that you and I this morning can be made right with God. He did it all. And so I end with these questions. Do you believe in this Jesus? Right, a belief that leads to trust in him and him alone. And secondly, will you follow this king named Jesus? No matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice. So just as we close, pray with me. Our Father and our God are our, our good king who meets us. Lord, our, our king who is different than any other king on this earth. Lord, a king who became flesh to dwell among us. A king who died for me. Lord, we come to you now and we just know that your kindness leads us to repentance. And all we've seen this morning, Lord, is your kindness. 
Lord, so send your spirit down. Convict us of where this is not true in our hearts. Lord, let your spirit come down and fill us with the grace, fill us with the compassion that you died on the cross in order to give us. So Lord, I just ask for my heart, I just ask for the hearts of this people, for this church, the people online, that you would come meet us in the exact way, that, that our hearts would hear your words this morning of a Savior who died for us, that we don't have to be chasing after these false idols, but we have a God who died so that we could be comforted in him. This is the first time we're hearing this, Lord. Please bring salvation to our hearts. If this is the 195th time, Lord, we just ask that you would renew the spirit within us, that you would break the desires and the idols that have come, Lord. So we just thank you for your grace and for your mercy this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.